0: like us, dear listener, you're a bit overwhelmed by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. And our next sponsor has provided us with some very interesting facts that we would like to pass on to you.
1: Fact number one, teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary per person, but for most of us, it's an off-white or a slightly yellowish undertone.
0: Fact two, teeth whitening does not damage teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate. When dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which as we all know, lead to tooth decay. Avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also avoid staining substances as the teeth are more susceptible to re-staining during this period.
1: Fact number three. Tooth sensitivity is the result of tooth dehydration. When the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application known as remineralization or desensitizing gel.
0: Fact 4. Caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they do not have pores for the stains to latch to. Prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade.
1: Fact number five, the key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as a whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is a device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without interruption.
0: Whitening strips neglect the crevices and molars, and they slide on your teeth.
1: Saliva floods the generic trays because they're bulky. They don't create a seal.
0: Oh, and you likely did not know this, but LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit. You need a high-output UV light only found at the dentist. Don't fall for the gimmick. If you insist on a light that does not work, get one on Amazon for under $5.
1: The number one whitening device recommended by dentists is a custom-fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for $300 to $600, or you can head on over to smilebrilliant.com and use their lab-direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price you'd pay at the dentist. Oh, and um, if you grind your teeth at night, by the way, like me, Kemper, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom-fitted night guards once again for a fraction of the price the dentists charge.
0: Once again, that's www.smilebrilliant.com and use special All About Agatha coupon code Agatha, A-G-A-T-H-A, you know how it's spelled, for an exclusive All About Agatha discount. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan.
1: I'm Catherine Brobeck.
0: And, oh, Catherine, I, I must have just brushed against a thorn or something. I I seem to have pricked my thumb.
1: Oh, you know, you're just getting increasingly worse with the dad jokes, Kemper. Now I'm and just
0: baiting you with the dad jokes. I know, you, I,
1: totally, <laughs> you totally are baiting me. It's fine. I love a good pun, but boy. It's,
0: it's rather wicked of me. Isn't it? What are we we covering today, Catherine? What novel do we have the pleasure (laughs) of discussing?
1: We're doing, obviously, by the pricking of my thumbs. A Tommy and Tuppence novel. It
0: has been so long since we have been able to uh, visit with our favorite married detective couple. Mm -hmm. Christy left a gap of over a quarter century between N or M podcast favorite and this novel. But the day is upon us at long last. We are here. We are very excited to discuss it. It is super creepy. We're heading into fall and Halloween. I think this is very appropriate. Could you tell us a little bit about the publication history of By the Pricking of My Thumbs, Catherine?
1: Yes, it was published in November of 1968 in the UK by Collins Crime and then by Dodd Mead in the US just very slightly after in the same year. If uh, you didn't get it from Kemper's terrible jokes just now obviously the title comes from the Scottish play we are not calling it anything else in this (laughs) episode nor should you dear listeners you know the line is by the pricking of my thumbs something wicked this way comes
0: I believe the second witch says that right the second weird sister Mm Also, just on the publication history, uh, you'll notice we did not mention any serializations. And I believe that there were no serializations for this novel. And I do know, per Laura Thompson, Christie biographer, that at least the Saturday Evening Post, a U.S. magazine, declined to serialize this, saying, and I quote, Not for us, I'm afraid. The plot is certainly ingenious, but the people are also bloody decrepit. <laughs> Apparently, the Saturday Evening Post had an English editor who was, I guess, reviewing submissions or else that was an American using the word bloody in that way, which I find strange, but um, a little harsh, I think, on this book. I think one of the best things about it is the fact that it does feature some aged people and its setting in the beginning is quite creepy and convincing. But also just in terms of some publication tidbits, uh, we do know that Agatha Christie herself insisted on writing her own blurb for the first edition of this book because she was very particular about these things and she wanted them done right. And we also know this is per Janet Morgan, the other major Christie biographer, that uh, Christie was quite feisty about some editorial changes that had been made to the manuscript. She did not like the fact that an editor at Collins had tried to change her dialogue and make it more grammatical. And here's what she wrote to Billy Collins, because I never miss an opportunity to quote her angry letters to either him. him or Edmund Cork, her agent. Here's what she said to Billy. Perhaps you would make it clear not to change the spelling of the author unless it is actually misspelt. If I prefer fantasy to fantasy, she spells it the first time with a ph and the second time with an F. Both words are in dictionary. I want it left alone. I don't want sentences twisted round to be more grammatical when they are part of someone's spoken conversation. Otherwise, everyone's conversation would sound exactly alike and not like ordinary, variable human beings. And, you know, she's right about that. And I think at this totally point, she's... Totally valid point. Yeah. She's she's earned the right not to be edited in that way. So I I feel her on that also, by the way,
1: she's. But it's not even that she earned the right. It's that that is accurate. She, <laughs> she's totally right. People have different cadence. People have different speech patterns. So Patois, you can't grammatically right? correct that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's not a legitimate edit, I think, to make. But there, um, there
1: is a lot of dialogue
0: in this book. There's a lot of dialogue in this book. I mean, this is where, you know, we talked about how the dictaphone really worked for Christy in Endless Night because she was able to nail Mike Rogers's voice so well. But this, mm-hmm. I think, is where, um, similar to Third Girl, we can see a little bit of the meandering dialogue problem that I think we get in later Christy. And I imagine the dictaphone has something to do with that. Before we get into the meat of the story, I do just want to point out the dedication of this book because it's super fun. It's not dedicated to a specific person, it's dedicated to us, to her many readers. And this is what she says This book is dedicated to the many readers in this and other countries who write to me asking, What has happened to Tommy and Tuppence? What are they doing now? My best wishes to you all, and I hope you will enjoy meeting Tommy and Tuppence again, years older, but with spirit unquenched. And I think there is actually a a lot of enjoyment to be had in revisiting with Tommy and Tuppence now that they have aged. And of course, they very famously are the only detectives of Christie's that really do get to age more or less in line with the way that Christie aged and her readers aged over the years and the decades. And um, I also did appreciate that the format of this book is a little unusual, it's divided into four discrete books parts Mm -hmm. essentially um, which are named and then each of the chapters within those books is named as well I quite enjoyed actually the way that it was broken up and a lot of the chapter headings and whatnot there's a lot to I think um, admire in this book but then there might also be some parts of this book that we will not be admiring and critiquing so let's keep that in mind I suppose as we get into our victim for this mystery Catherine who is the victim here
1: well uh, <laughs> quite the question, Kemper.
0: <laughs> Who isn't the victim might be a better question?
1: <laughs> that might be that might be the question. I mean I would say that one of the main victims is Tuppence, actually. <laughs> but you know, spoiler Given that we know there's another Tommy and Tuppence novel, she does survive. But the only victim in this, weirdly enough, who's actually explicitly named is an elderly lady named Mrs. Moody who just is really angry about not getting her hot cocoa. At the old age home of Sunny Ridge, which I kept thinking in my head, Kemper as Shady Pines.
0: Of I mean of course you did. I did too.
2: Mother lives at the Shady Pines retirement home. Oh
1: the Shady Pines. I know the Shady Pines is a lovely
2: place. It's a prison.
0: This is not the last time that I think we will be referencing Shady Pines of Golden Girls fame.
2: Boy, something smells good in here. What's for lunch? It's cat food, Sophia. Is that seafood medley? Yes, it is. They used to feed that to us every Sunday at the home. Ah, oh, they did not make you eat cat food at Shady Pines. I didn't say they made us eat it. You have the option to go hungry.
0: I recommend thinking of shady pines from golden girls and Sophia petrillo every time sunny ridge is mentioned in this book and you will enjoy it a lot more for the last time shady pines
2: is a very reputable rest home i'm telling you dorothy they used to pre-sell our bodies to medical schools (laughs) that was a big joke how would you like to go to college (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, Mrs. Moody uh, does die, and we will eventually find out that she was, in fact, murdered. But Poisoned. Um, even, right? Poisoned, correct.
0: I poisoned <laughs> in the very cocoa that she loved. She's even called Mrs. Coco on point because that's her defining characteristic that she yells yeah. out for cocoa. And I did mm-hmm. appreciate the fact that cocoa is spelled with an A at the end because the word cocoa is very important. Within the history of Agatha Christie as a writer, since it was the spelling of Coco in the Mysterious Affair at Styles that caused mm-hmm. her to fall out with her original publisher and eventually move on over to Billy Collins, who she then had decades worth of sending angry letters to.
1: <laughs> I would not call them angry, Kemper. I would call them decisive and self assured,
0: and spirited. And there's nothing wrong with that. And,
1: you know, there is a little bit of a question about whether or not Aunt Ada was also murdered. There's not going to ever be a clear answer to that.
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that she was murdered, but it's not really ever stated explicitly at the end of the Mm -hmm. novel. But I do think we can safely assume, although. Oh, not very safe to make any sort of assumptions in Christie, But um, yes, Aunt Ada, who we will get to very soon at the beginning of the world, as it appears to be. I think she's another um, early victim here in the story. And boy, do we have a lot of other victims.
1: Oh, yeah. This is a, this is a novel about a mass murderer.
0: Oh, we've got a serial killer on our hands here, folks. So, yes, we have a lot of victims, especially in the past. and And
1: we don't get really names. So just keep that in mind. We actually can't tell you who the victims are here because it's not stated. So we just know that there are a lot of them.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about our suspects. Uh, We have a lot of them. It's not absolutely everyone in the book. We don't quite have a closed circle mystery here because the action takes place at first in an old age home and then in a somewhat remote and rural village. And our suspects, for the most part, actually come from that rural village. Not quite True Christy closed circle mystery. But first up, we have Miss Bly, whose first name is not Nellie, but everyone calls her Nellie Bly. I guess as a reference to Nellie Bly, the journalist who, you I know. I guess
1: so. It's weird though.
0: It's very weird. I was like, is that a reference to Nellie Bly, the journalist, because she very famously pretended to be insane and she wrote an expose on that Mm -hmm. insane asylum in New York City? Or is it just that she was a high profile journalist who got a lot of stuff done and she was very efficient with her time and uh, she had, you know, an important career and Miss Bly carries herself that way? It was very unclear to me where that Nellie Bly reference is coming from or what it means. I agree. Okay. Um, As long as I wasn't missing anything either. If anyone has any light to shed on that, feel free. But Miss Bly, Nellie Bly, she is a young woman who works for the local vicar in Sutton Mm -hmm. Chancellor, which is the remote village where, you know, I'd say about two thirds of the action of the story takes place.
1: Yeah. And we have Mrs. Buskowen, who is the widow of a prolific and well-known painter, Sort of interesting because he's obviously deceased, but the painting is very important to the story. Indeed. And she's
0: a sculptor as well. Mm-hmm. So yep. shades of Henrietta Savernake there for sure mm-hmm. from the hollow. Then we have Sir Philip Stark, who is a local landowner in Sutton Chancellor. And Mr. Eccles. Oh yes, one of the creepy Christie lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And then we have Mr. and Mrs. Perry, who are renters of the backside of a house that goes by many, many names in this book. Oh, park.
1: I think there are at least four or five
0: yeah. I mean, it is often called the canal house, Watermead, Ladymead, lady mead, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the house that Tuppence is looking for and where a lot of the focus of the story is. And they rent the back side of it. The front side of it is unoccupied, or is it? And Mr. and Mrs. Perry are a somewhat creepy pair. Mrs. Perry looks like a friendly witch. And Mr. Perry is big and hulking. A white witch. A white witch, yes. Uh, and Mr. Perry is big and hulking. And, you know, he's characterized as potentially not being all there, I suppose, having some developmental or mental challenges. And because of that, Tuppence is Potentially distrustful of him, uh, just not exactly sure if she you know, knows everything that there is to know about him. As you can tell from the stumbling way I'm describing that, it's a little problematic the way that he's mm-hmm. characterized, yep. but there it is.
1: We also have Miss Packard, who basically runs the home for the aged. <laughs> you hire the angel of death from Shady Pines. And she has, you know, per Toppins, apparently very large teeth. Which seems to be her defining character trait.
0: It's like, is she the wolf in Little Red Riding Hood?
1: Maybe. Possibly so. And um, <laughs> Tuppence is very suspicious of Miss Packard, we should say.
0: I think if Sophia Petrillo were a character in the story, she too would be very suspicious of Miss Packard.
1: I
2: haven't seen so many goofy smiles as the Great Denture swap at Shady Pines. <laughs> I
1: think so as well.
0: <laughs> and then finally, we couldn't fail to mention Mrs. Lancaster, who is a resident within, kind of keep on wanting to say Shady Pines. Ma,
2: please, for the hundredth time, Shady Pines was a beautiful retirement village. Sure, sure. And Attic is known for its top-notch tennis facilities.
0: <laughs> who is a resident within Sunny Ridge and who Tuppence meets at the beginning of the book and has an incredibly creepy tête-à-tête with she disappears she is the focus of a lot of attention and we will certainly be talking about her a lot more all right well let's move on over into the world as it appears to be take it away catherine
1: i want to say up front that it's said basically at the very beginning of this that tommy and tuppins are elderly but if you actually do the math of it they've been married for 30 years we find out 30 something years which would probably actually put them in their mid to late fifties.
0: Yeah, I actually take issue with that. I don't think that they present themselves as elderly because at the beginning they're talking about how they're not elderly yet. Well, I they think
1: don't. They don't think so. But actually, the text and the narration implies that they have become old. And I mean, I suppose that that's fair. But I would say that they're probably in their late fifties. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely.
0: Yes, I think late 50s is exactly right. This is where the timeline just gets confusing because there wasn't enough time between partners in crime and NRM for how old Mm -hmm. they and their children are. And now there's almost too much time. Correct. Between NRM and by the pricking of my thumbs. But yes, let's just split the difference. I think they're in their 50s and they're at that point where they're not elderly themselves, but they are at the end of middle age, right? Like they are late middle age. I mean, especially for 1968. Being in your 50s in 1968 is very different from being in your 50s in 2021. So they are certainly
1: well, uh, and depends on (laughs) depends on possibly what your lifestyle was like.
0: It does. But I think for most people, I mean, certainly on average, I think if you're in your 50s in 1968, you're a lot older. But yeah, I think that they're not quite old, but they're certainly getting really close. And then given the fact that so much of this book takes place in and around an old person's home, that kind of edges them ever closer toward being elderly.
1: Right. It's lurking as a point in the novel. So what we do know is that Tommy has an 80-something-year-old Aunt Ada who lives in Sunny Ridge. Come on out to the Nile. I'll give you the lowdown on Shady Pines. You know, who does what for cigarettes? And it turns out she's maybe not so nice. Tommy and Tuppence have not gone visiting her in some time, mostly because they don't want to.
0: There's a so. lot of shade thrown at poor Aunt Ada, Ada Fanshaw. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know what's really funny? Just like we keep calling it Shady Pines, I kept wanting to call her Aunt Ada Doom. <laughs> from Cold Comfort (laughs) Farm. I just kept thinking that. Yeah, Cold Comfort Farm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, it's really true. I mean, Tuppence says, you know, I don't think anyone has ever liked her. She's really mean to Tuppence, so I think Tuppence has a good excuse, actually, for throwing shade at her. At one point, Nurse O'Keefe says, oh, she must have been very handsome as a girl. And then Christy has Tommy replying, quote-unquote, doubtfully, and he says, I suppose so.
1: Well, I mean, when Tommy does show up, she... Screams at him, and she basically calls Tuppence like a tart.
0: She says that um, Tuppence is one among all these loose women that Tommy mm. brings round to her, speaking as though they were your wife.
1: Yep. Then he tries to be nice to her again, and then she says, I know who you are. You used to have hair that wasn't gray, basically. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, she doesn't sound like a real peach, to be honest, Kemper. Well, you
0: know what? You spend a couple of years at Sunny Ridge slash Shady Pines and we'll talk.
2: She told me we were going to a resort. We pull up to this place that looks like the Bates Motel. And two goons in white coats drag me inside. And for the next year and a half, I'm forced to make lanyards against my will. Ma, you know that's not how it was. You're right. Sometimes they force me to make moccasins.
1: There's this real note made that it's an act that she's much sharper than the act that she's putting on. So that actually does make her aggressively mean.
0: (laughs) It's not surprising, given this performance, that Tuppence leaves when she's basically thrown out the room. She's like, "Okay, great, I'm out. And she goes into a separate room. And she sits down and she waits for Tommy, and this is where she meets a Mrs. Lancaster. And this scene is super creepy, and it's probably one of the best parts of this book. And it's also the scene that had preoccupied Christy for quite some time. And we've talked about it before because it came up in The Pale Horse. It mm-hmm. actually also appears in Sleeping Murder, which she had already written by this point, but which, of course, hadn't been published yet. It was apparently in an unpublished version of Endless Night. And it was this whole notion of an old lady talking about a child buried behind the fire fireplace. And I think just the description of Mrs. Lancaster when we first see her is really good. Christy writes, an old lady with white hair combed back off her face who was sitting in a chair holding a glass of milk in her hand and looking at it. She had a pretty pink and white face and she smiled at Tuppence in a friendly manner. Just the casual way that she leans forward and says, excuse me, was it your poor child? And then Toppin says, no, I don't think so. And Mrs. Lancaster replies, I wondered. I thought perhaps you'd come for that reason. Someone ought to come sometime. Perhaps they will. And looking at the fireplace the way you did, that's where it is, you know behind the fireplace. And then Tuppence says, oh, is it? And Mrs. Lancaster replies, always the same time, always the same time of day. She looked up at the clock on the mantelpiece. Tuppence looked up also. Ten past eleven, said the old lady. Ten past eleven. Yes, it's always the same time every morning. People didn't understand. I told them what I knew, but they wouldn't believe me. So that happened. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. We're just going
1: to say up front that there's not a lot of mystery to this book. But there's a lot of atmosphere. There is a lot of atmosphere.
0: I will say that for it. I think the strong point of this book is that it is creepy. It is creepy AF. Use modern mm. parlance, right? Yes. But yes, it's light on mystery, pretty strong on tone, actually, when it comes to the atmospherics of horror, which we've seen Christy have an interest in for her entire career. I mean, we talked about how she did Grand Guignol in some of those early, early short stories, even from oh, the 20s. Yeah. So she can and do this.
1: No, and there's like a very clear sense that if Mrs. Lancaster had just started throwing knitting needles at this point you would have basically said oh yeah seems right So,
0: you know, it's not surprising that Tuppence doesn't forget about this interaction. And that's going to become very significant because what happens next, Catherine?
1: They leave. Tommy comes and finds her. And obviously she's disconcerted because of the interaction with Mrs. Lancaster. And they go home. Uh, We do also, by the way, we should mention that we find out that Albert is still working for them. But he got gotten these bad. Yes. He did. And it is mentioned kind of cruelly.
0: And apparently he has um, not learned how to cook. He burns a lot of chickens in the course of these So
1: pages. many chickens, apparently. So many
0: burnt chickens.
1: It's kind of amazing, actually. But okay. So Tommy and Toppins leave and they find out that Aunt Ada apparently dies of natural causes before they can come visit again. So sad that they can't be yelled at again, I guess. But... They do return to Sunny Ridge slash Shady Pines. Oh, yeah, this is the day
2: I escaped from Shady Pines. It says right here, I'm free, I'm free. <laughs>
1: and Mrs. Lancaster has also been whisked away, not by death, but by a Mrs. Johnson. And no one has heard from either of them since. And so in the room, Tommy Tuppins decided to take a side table and a desk. They take the side table because it's going to replace an ugly one in their house, apparently.
0: <laughs> I'm doing a little so, bit of redecorating.
1: Yep. Yeah, they're doing a little bit of redecorating and that they like the desk, which, you know, is a n- nice antique. And then they take a painting, which Tuppence is struck by because, first of all, she did not remember it being in the room before. And it reminds her of something. And she just can't quite remember what it is it's a house on a river or a canal and when they start asking about it they find out that it came from mrs lancaster as a gift
0: right and she knows that she's seen the house depicted in the painting before that's what's bothering her she's like i've seen this house before. yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so that's curious. They go back home. Tommy then jets off to an old man spy reunion where basically he and a bunch of other has-beens in espionage are going to pretend that they're still important. You know, I'm
1: not going to um, say how I know this, but I do know that this does exist in real life.
0: (laughs) And Tuppence, oh, this hurts so much because this just shows how little has changed. I mean, this has been a through line in the Tommy and Tuppence series really from the beginning, especially in Partners in Crime and especially, especially in NRM. Tuppence has always had to fight to be a part of these adventures because Tommy, Mm -hmm. of course, gets hired officially. You know, we saw this in Partners in Crime when they were made into fake detectives. They weren't really made into fake detectives. Tommy, was made into a fake detective. Tuppence was his fake secretary, which Tommy actually reminds Tuppence of rather Mm. nastily in the pages of this book.
1: Yeah, he's not nice about it. And the reality is we've read all of Partners in Crime and we know who does all of the solving. Well, that would be Tuppence. Well,
0: they do it together. They're a team. I mean, they're a great team. And that's kind of the point of Tommy and Tuppence. But... This is a very important part of the way that they work because in NRM especially Tuppence had to eavesdrop on a conversation in her own home and then go to the location where Tommy was going to engage in his spy activities pretending to be someone else. And then Tommy just had to go along with it. And she thereby inserted herself into that specific spy game where she played, of course.
1: Which is funny because it's also mentioned it is, um, and that here. is
0: mentioned too. That's the thing. These things are brought up. There's actually really good continuity in this book. Mm-hmm. We don't always get great continuity in the Poirots and Marples, to be quite honest. But I think because Christy likes Tommy and Tuppence as much as she does. She has an obvious affection for them and she hadn't used them all that often. Um, there's a lot of consistency here and they do reference exactly what I referenced in these very pages, which I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting. So Tuppence has to do it again, even though, you know, they've been together now for decades because she uh, is not invited. She is bothered, though, by this painting and more importantly, by the fact that Mrs. Lancaster just seems to have disappeared from Sunny Ridge hastily, shall we say?
2: All right, all you gals are gonna get locked up in a closet, and us boys are going for a little walk. Wow, were you ever activities director of a place called Shady Pines? (laughs) She's using
0: her instinct here to act upon something that just doesn't seem right to her. So she says, "Okay, Tommy's going to go play his spy games. I'm going to go track down that house in that painting, which I know that I have seen, because maybe in some way that's going to lead me to Mrs. Lancaster. You know, before she does that, obviously they do go the normal route of asking the forwarding address that the person who collected Mrs. Lancaster um, left at the home when she departed so quickly. And there was a forwarding address, but it's a dead end. And it leads to these solicitors and a hotel where they apparently never even stayed. Mm -hmm. So it just seems as if Mrs. Lancaster really was rendered. (laughs) And Tuppence is just determined to find her.
1: And also, I think enough cannot be said about the fact that Tommy is so dismissive about his like weird old spy reunion To her, he won't even tell her details about it. And I don't know that this is going to come up later, but when he's at the spy reunion, everybody keeps saying to him, Oh, you know, it'd be kind of basically, it would be kind of nice if Tuppence were here. Basically,
0: (laughs) I think you potentially are being a little hard on Tommy, but point taken.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, but I mean, it's a motivating factor for her. It's not just that she's worried about Mrs. Lancaster. It's that she's mad.
0: She's bored and annoyed and irritated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally.
1: Yeah. So after there's all these dead ends, Tommy goes off and she eats some, you know, burnt chicken. And what she does is she digs up maps and railway guidebooks and thanks to Albert actually asking her if she's going to be gone for a day, he asks if he can have a day off because it turns out that one of his children has measles. And so he wants to take the other daughter to school. So Tuppen says, of course, and... It reminds her instantaneously of a friend's daughter. The friend's daughter, a similar situation, and the mother could not come to attend the daughter's event. So Tuppence went on her own. We um, like got at, at a
0: boarding school. The daughter at was a at a boarding, boarding school, and the yep. mother couldn't attend due to measles, I think, right? Of another child. Another of, of her children had Exa- measles,
1: ex- yeah. It's exactly like the Albert situation. So. She remembers suddenly where the boarding school was and what the route had to have been.
0: Around the same time, Albert also, because he's preparing food for her journey, and he's like, do you want some of this pate and this super old tin that I just found in the larder? I know. And she's like, I guess. And I was like, Albert, do you know nothing about bulging tins and tomein to poisoning?
1: Come on. I know, and but but the thing is, like Tuppence also fully recognizes it, and she just is cringing.
0: I think the narration is that it's a sinister recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the <pet day. laughs> There's all of the lightness that you do get in the Tommy and Tuppence stories is here, it's just it's outweighed by the considerable darkness of the murderer and the murders that have happened, especially in the past. But we do have a lot of that Tommy and Tuppence lightness that we so love.
1: Yeah, absolutely we do. I mean, less so when Tuppence takes off because she's gonna drive. So she's not actually gonna take the train. But she uses the rail guides and the maps to figure out what the route she must have taken was.
0: Because she's tracking down the train lines, right? She's Correct. like, well, I know it had to be in one of two train lines. And then she's, you know, she's very systematic about it. And she figures it out.
1: Yeah, she finds the house. So she wanders down the lane and she ends up meeting the Perry's who live in the back section of this like Victorian mansion.
0: Right, because the front side looks out onto a canal, right? And the, mm-hmm. the train track is on the other side of the canal, which is why when she saw it through the train window, mm-hmm. she, it was a house on the canal. But the Perrys live on the land side, essentially.
1: What they live in is basically it was the kitchen and pantry and servants' quarters, and it was subdivided at some point. So there's a wall, so the basically nicer bits of the house are blocked off from the back of the house, and they're two separate units, and nobody lives in the front. It's unclear why it was abandoned, but it's apparently also uninhabitable, and the Perrys are, you know, as we said up front, they're odd, eccentric, I guess. Um us that. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave it at that. There's nothing overtly bad about them, but no. they're written as creepy
0: they're written as like elbow elbow take a look at these weirdos that's how they're written
1: yeah but when she's talking to mrs perry um who invites her in to the house tuppence there's this whole thing that nobody goes into the front side and there's all this noise on the front side and then mrs perry says essentially like oh it's because birds keep falling down the chimney
0: and then just like starving to death and dying dying Yeah. You know, like over days, if not weeks. She's like, "Yeah, yeah it's, so, a, it's a horrible noise. And Thomas is like, can we do something about these poor birds?
1: Yeah. And they do. They do. They do. Because Mr. Perry shows up and he says, well, actually, we can go into the front of the house and they go in there. And it's actually like a fascinating description because most of the furniture is gone. The bookcases are still there. There's still pile carpeting, I believe, but it's clear that there's been a leak through the ceiling because there are now stains on the ceiling that Tuppence notices.
0: Right, but the dimensions of the rooms are beautiful. Because Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, I think she says it it dates back probably to 1790 or something Mm -hmm. like that. So it has these grand, airy kinds of dimensions. And I imagine with these big windows overlooking the canal. And it's actually quite beautiful in a way that the front part of the house, since that was the servant's quarters essentially was not, it was much more pokey. Um, so it's a little, a little bit like going through the looking glass, you know, into a mm-hmm. different house. And it is very effective the way that she writes it.
1: Oh, I think, yeah, it's incredibly effective, I think. And Mr. Perry finds the bird in the chimney And he opens one of the giant windows and he lets the bird out. And then he basically says, we might as well end its life because it's clearly injured. And both Tuppence and Mrs. Perry say, we'll give it a minute and ends up flying off. But when Tuppence goes to look into the fireplace, there are multiple dead birds in there. And there's a comment about like how, oh, it's good that it doesn't smell as bad as it sometimes does. Because of all the rotting
0: bird corpses. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Also, there's a creepy falling apart doll.
0: Because multiple bird corpses in a fireplace wasn't creepy enough. Just had to up the creep
1: factor. Yep. <laughs> With a doll. <laughs> yep. So... Apparently
0: Annabelle was there too.
1: <laughs> oh, no. No. Scary. No. Don't say it. I like your dolls. <sighs> <sighs> And so then Tuppence is basically like, you know what? I will still take this.
0: (laughs) She's like, this is fabulous.
1: (laughs) Yeah. She's like, you know what? I've really been looking for a country house for me and my husband to retire to in 18 months. And this creepy, creepy place with all the bird corpses and the scary doll. This seems like the ideal place.
0: She's like, the doll and the bird remains come with, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So she gets directed to the estate agent. So she drives herself on up there to introduce herself to possibly let the canal-facing side of, you know, Scaryville.
0: There's a larger town called Market Basing, right? Which is sort of the main town. Mm Mm-hmm that this house is near to. And we should note that Market Basing made an appearance, a titular appearance, no less, in a Poirot short story, The Market Basing Mystery, which she would famously expand into the novella Murder in the Muse. This, along with a reference to Inspector Japp in The Secret Adversary, is more evidence that the Beresfords and Poirot live in the same universe. A proposition very much complicated, of course, by the fact that Tommy and Tuppence read and spoof Poirot as a fictional detective in the final story within the Partners in Crime collection. Oh, Agatha. But the house itself was within the village of Sutton Chancellor. So, you know, we both get some scenes in Market Basing, like when she goes to these estate agents and she goes to more than one estate agent and they're all a bit sleazy. And also creepy and kind of evasive about this canal house. She finally finds the estate agent that could sell it to her, but they don't want to sell it to her. And it's all very weird. But then she's like, well... Maybe I'm reading too much into this and house agents are kind of sleazy and creepy anyway. So I don't know what's happening here, but this is all very weird. In and around the time that she's pretending to go house hunting, I believe this happens both before and after that sequence in Market Basing. She also does some snooping in Sutton Chancellor and she goes to the church. I love this, by the way, because this sent me a Googling. And I think you'll appreciate this as well, Catherine, because when she looks at the church, she immediately says, oh, this church is early perp and deck. And it's mentioned that she grew up in a vicarage. And we do know that, of course, from The Secret Adversary. She's the fifth daughter of Archdeacon Cowley of Little Missendell in Suffolk. And I really had to look that up because I I was like, well, that is an architectural term I do not know. Because this is English ecclesiastical architecture, early perp and deck. And the perp stands for perpendicular and the deck for decorated. And from what I could gather, it's a style that is sort of just about creating visual effect through decoration, but then also a predominance of vertical lines. So that's where you have your perp and your deck. <laughs> and she doesn't like it, by the way. She's not well, a fan. It's
1: mentioned um, very later. I think it's one of the chapter headings. Maybe that here is the church. Here is the steeple. <laughs>
0: Well, and she and the vicar of the church talk about how ugly it is, too, and how it was ruined by the Victorians, which is something that Christy loves to talk about how Victorians ruined architecture. We don't really think he actually is ever named. He's just referred to throughout as the vicar. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do as well. Uh, you know, I'm sure he does have a name, but he does not seem to be important enough to have one <laughs> for this story, uh, which is also why he's never really a suspect. And this is the first time you're hearing about him. But the vicar seems very nice and kindly. He is actually in search of a grave of a child because of a random call that he received asking if he could locate this grave of a girl named Lily Waters. We don't actually learn that for quite some time. (laughs) That is the name of the girl who he is looking for. And Tuppence volunteers to help. She also meets at this time Miss Bly, who is very efficient in and around the parish. And she assists the vicar. She seems to be his right-hand woman in all things. And they direct her, since she seems to have a lot to do and has to find a place to stay, to a local b with a Mrs. Copley, who has some lodgings that she lets from time to time. And Mrs. Copley is actually also a fun character in this book. And I think she adds to the lightness. I love the way that Christy describes her. Mrs. Copley herself seemed to tuppence like a character straight out of the pages of Dickens. She was very small and very round so that she came rolling towards you rather like a rubber ball. She had bright twinkling eyes, blonde hair rolled up in sausage curls on her head and an air of tremendous vigor. And boy, does she not stop talking. There is a (laughs) lot of dialogue with Mrs. Copley. And this is very much intentional. I mean, Toppins has an internal monologue going where she's like, what am I doing? Tommy was right. This is madness. I have no idea what this woman is even talking about. She's gossiping about people from 30 years ago. I don't even know what's happening. But one of the things that Mrs. Copley tells her is about a string of child murders <laughs> that happened in Sutton just Chancellor ca- years earlier. a
1: casual remark to
0: make, by the way, Kemper. Because I don't know if there's anything that, that you love jawing about more than child serial killers and all of the children who they have murdered in oh, times
1: Oh, yeah. Past. The it's one thing fun. that I'd want to do is check into a local Airbnb someplace and have somebody give you over the keys and be like, oh, yeah, by the way, this town is famous for all its child murders. Mrs. Copley's just
0: trying to give a sense of the local color. She apparently is very Dickensian. (laughs) Um, So Tuppence, after this, you know, she sleeps at Mrs. Copley's. She wakes up. The next day she's doing more snooping. She actually goes to Miss Bly's house because Miss Bly insists that she have tea with her. She happens to see a letter addressed to a Mrs. York, who's another old lady in an old home. She's thinking to herself, oh my god, all these old ladies in old homes, pretty Soon, Tommy and I are going to be in old homes. <laughs> <laughs> then she goes to the graveyard to help the vicar look for that grave. And what happens at this point? Well, we are in a Tommy and Tuppence. These Tommy and Tuppences are always somewhat thrillerish. So, of course, at this point, it is time for someone to be coshed over the head. And this time, it is Tuppence who gets hit over the head and not Tommy.
1: This is like, again, where this is like a really weirdly structured book because it switches between sections.
0: I think that's the end of book two. And then book three, Tuppence is nowhere to be found. And now we're back with Tommy. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he gets back from his old dude spy conference.
0: His IRL 4chan meetup.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're just actually going to solve cereal. in.
0: <laughs> literally, I knew I, Catherine, you you always know the dad jokes. I knew that you were going for cereal.
1: That's what they were doing while drinking scotch and smoking cigars all weekend. So he comes home and he's really upset because there's no tub-ins. And, you know, we should mention they do love each other. That's always been made very clear in these books.
0: And it's made really clear in this book, actually. I mean, even though it's a problematic sequence in which Tuppence gets frustrated with Tommy, I mean, Tuppence tries to pull the wool over Tommy's eyes when she's like, oh, I'll go back with you to Sunny Ridge because I'm actually super interested in Aunt Ada's possessions. I want to go over them with you. And he's like, hmm... Why do you really want to go? And she has to admit that she wants to check up on Mrs. Lancaster and she has this great line and it's like the perfect because it's so understated and there's nothing more Christy-ish, I think, than this line. Oh, dear. It is awful being married to someone who knows too much about one. It's like they just know each other super well at this point. And, I mean, you know, other characters make comments throughout this book about, wow, you two seem to be really happily married. And Tuppence is like, yeah, it's super awesome.
1: I mean, just like I know what your dad jokes are going to be. And like, you know, that I was about to make a serial reference.
0: It's nice to be seen, isn't it, Catherine? It, it is
1: nice to be seen. You know, <laughs> to um,
0: see and be seen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but here again, because he does know that Tommy is actually like pretty alarmed immediately that she's not there and gets talked down from it, basically.
0: Yeah, he's alarmed in his low key way. But I do like how Albert immediately is like, it's a gang. It's an international gang. And it's kind of a callback to partners in crime because he's yes. like, stop with all that old silliness, you know, the ultimate irony being it was kind of a gang but
1: (laughs) (laughs) i know albert actually is the smartest person in this book frankly
0: yeah i mean the irony that albert is right is not lost on christy for a second obviously so that is actually rather clever
1: yeah so tommy waits it out waits it out probably a little long he should have followed his first instinct or albert's instinct as well But he waits, and they do not hear from Tuppence. And so at that point, they both are like, she was up to something. Clearly, it had to do with the painting. And Tommy actually happens to be in possession of the painting. So he uses old connections in the art world to determine its provenance. And it's by this painter who's now deceased, Bus Cowan. But he has a widow. So he goes to her and she's a sculptor. She's really not happy to see him show up because she's super suspect immediately and basically is like, what do you want? (laughs) What she ends up telling him is two very important things. She recognizes the painting immediately. So she tells him where the house is and she tells him when she's looking at the painting that at some point, since it was painted by her late husband, someone added a little boat in the canal that said water lily. Where did we just hear that before? Mm,
0: lily waters. Water lily. To be fair to Christy, this is not like some big clue. The connection is made explicit pretty quickly. Yes. But, you know, it's it's very obvious from the moment we learn about the boat. But that is why she also holds back on Lily Waters's name, because I think we find out both those pieces of information pretty close to each other. Mm-hmm. If this was like one of the main clues, that would be a problem. But it's it's really not. And, you know, again, this isn't really a puzzle mystery, so we don't have many clues. It's more of a thriller. But in any case, let us move things along. Around this time, Tommy gets a call from Deborah. Let's never forget, Tommy and Tuppence had twins, Derek and Deborah. Deborah mm-hmm. has her own children at this point. She is fully grown. And she calls her dad to say that, um, hey, I read this article in the newspaper <laughs> about a missing woman who'd been coshed over the head and who said that her name was Prudence Cowley, which we know is Tuppence's. Made name. So apparently Tuppence thinks she's like 20 <laughs> and, and that, you know, she still goes by Prudence Cowley. She, she, at this point, does not have any memory of her husband or her children, which is interesting. Deborah is a little irked with her father. She says, I wish to goodness you could look after mother properly. And then I I also found this
1: good good job. Good job, Deborah, because Deborah (laughs) was like actually paying attention to what she was reading in the paper and like immediately acted on it.
0: She immediately acted on it. And then I thought this was a bit rich coming from Tommy. But later in that conversation with Deborah, he says, I shouldn't be surprised if somebody hadn't given her a conk on the head. It's the sort of thing that happens to your mother. She gets into things. Really Tommy, uh, I believe I you're the one who gets conked on the head 90% repeat. of the well, time. Well,
1: I mean, but I have to say it's possible he uh doesn't remember that. You're right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is true he has he has a cte right
1: yeah right well i mean he's been hit over the head so many times and like borderline electrocuted yeah and also by the way we should mention there is an implication in nrm that deborah might have been doing spycraft herself
0: oh yeah so was this newspaper article just a cover
1: Possibly so.
0: Conspiracy theory. Tommy then is able to find Tuppence quite quickly in the hospital. And, you know, it's actually really funny, but the scene in which he's talking about how he's going to collect Tuppence after she's been found at Market Basing Hospital kind of reminded me of... Archie having to collect Agatha at the Harrogate Hydro. I don't think that that was intentional, but this is what Tommy says. She's come nicely to herself again, knows who she is or was and where she is, and they've sworn to keep her there waiting for me until I arrive to take charge of her again. On no account is she to be allowed to slip out by herself and go off again doing some more Tom fool detective work. So it's like she lost her memory because she thought she was Prudence Callie, but now she has her memory back and all is good, and I'm just going to collect her and all will be hunky-dory. I mean, that was the cover story, right? That they put out to the world where Archie Christie was like, oh, well, yes, she lost her memory, but now everything is okay. And we will go live our perfect happy life and get divorced (laughs) about a year later. So I just, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Now the team is back, right? Now that Tuppence has been found at the hospital.
1: Well, we should mention though that Albert also has figured out that maybe there's a secret that Aunt Ada had. Indeed. What do we love more than a secret drawer, Kemper?
0: (laughs) Not much. Not much.
1: I just, like, really want a bunch of secret drawers. It's like a life goal. That desk that was one of the only things that they took from Aunt Ada's room... Tommy says basically, like, there was no secret door. He and Tuppence looked. And then we find out that Albert actually is like a master craftsman. <laughs> He ends up pulling out like certain slides through various push keys in the middle of the desk.
0: He basically conducts a master class in accessing secret drawers.
1: It's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I know. And they find some recipes
0: a recipe for boiled ham, which is something we have definitely seen in Christie's stories before. <laughs>
1: Why you would hide that in a secret drawer, I'm not sure.
0: It's just something that happens in the Christie verse. We just have to accept these things, Catherine.
1: <laughs> but they also find a rolled up note, which, uh, rather than being a recipe for boiled ham, is basically about, oh yeah, all these people are being murdered.
0: Indeed. And that specifically Mrs. Moody, right? Elizabeth Moody. Right. I think she has recognized here a well-known criminal. There may be a poisoner at work among us. I myself prefer to keep an open mind, but I shall remain watchful. I propose to write down here any facts that come to my knowledge. The whole thing may be a mare's nest. Either my solicitor or my nephew, Thomas Beresford, is asked to make full investigation. Here's the thing. This comes at page 212 (laughs) of 277 (laughs) in my edition. Yeah. So it feels a little beside the point. When we get this, I have to say, we'll talk a little bit about the Agatha Christie's Marple adaptation of this novel. Yes, you heard that right. There's a Marple adaptation of this novel. This is one of the things that they corrected. We find out about this letter very early on, and the letter is what motivates Tuppence to actually go a hunting. It's just bizarre if this letter is going to exist at all within the story that it should appear this late. I thought that was an odd choice.
1: It's going to get odder. Tuppence has recovered her memory. And so Tommy comes to fetch her from hospital. And she actually reveals that that doll, the creepy doll from the house, she took that. She wrapped it in paper, which is also really interesting because I don't know how the Perrys wouldn't have noticed that she took the doll. But, you know, here we go. And even weirder, Tommy picks it up. And the doll falls further apart, quote unquote, like basically like gravel falls out of it. Except Tommy immediately realizes that it's filled with diamonds.
0: We've got uncut diamonds here. One of the last times we saw uncut diamonds was in Erkio Poirot's Christmas, actually. But they do pop up from time to time in a Christie story. We've got hidden jewels here. Is this sounding thriller-ish?
1: Again, let's reiterate more than 200 pages into this. We have a hidden message in a desk and a creepy doll filled with uncut gems.
0: And one of our detective investigators coshed over the head, but now seemingly totally fine. It just took her out of commission for a convenient period of time. <laughs> so Tommy and Tuppins are now together and they are, of course, determined to figure out what is happening here. They attend this little gathering at the Vicarage, which essentially has all of the relevant suspects in and around Sutton Chancellor, this is where we actually meet Sir Philip Stark, who is the local town benefactor. And um, I would um, miss-
1: like to note here that we listed him as a suspect upfront. And when we just said that, over two hundred pages into this novel, we get the mystery note, the uncut gems, and one of the suspects. One
0: of our main suspects. And he really is presented as a legitimate suspect. Yes. And this is on page 231 of 277 in my edition. So yes, the structuring of this mystery story is a little... Cockeyed, let's just put it that way. Especially for Christy. She's usually much more precise, I think, about these things. It's a little imbalanced. But we meet Sir Philip Stark. Miss Bly, who helps out the vicar, is actually his assistant. You know, again, she wears many hats in the village of Sutton Chancellor. She is pretty clearly super, super in love with him. An assistant slash secretary being devoted to her boss in a Christie novel? Never. Mrs. Boscowen, the widow of the painter and sculptor in her own right, she is attending as well, and she corners Tuppence and asks if she's not sure whether something is very wrong with this town. And I, you know, we all kind of scream at the page: "Yes, (laughs) we're (laughs) we're pretty sure there's something wrong with this town." Tuppence then pulls a runner, which is an interesting choice, given that she's already been coshed over the head once in this story. But she decides to go back to the Canal House because she's convinced that the Perrys had something to do with all this, and she just wants to confront them. So, you know, the Perrys have been our major suspects from earliest on and up until this point. So as we get into our clues and bridge on over into the world as it actually is, perhaps it really was Amos Perry and or his friendly witch of a wife, the White Witch. We don't really know. But even though this is not a proper puzzle mystery, and I defy anyone to not only solve this, but know completely what's going on as they're reading it, we do have some clues. I am going to take the first clue, okay? which is a good one, I think. Um, And this happens early on when Tommy and Tuppence are talking about Aunt Ada and how hard she is to like. And this is what Tuppence says. I mean, I'm very sorry for people if they're old or sick or anything, if they're nice people. But if they're not nice people, well, it's different, you must admit. If you're pretty nasty when you're 20 and just as nasty when you're 40 and nastier still when you're 60 and a perfect devil by the time you're 80. Well, really, I don't see why one should be particularly sorry for people just because they're old. You can't change yourself, really. If that sounded like a rather wordy (laughs) excerpt of dialogue... That would be representative of the dialogue in this novel. Well, and it's mostly
1: mostly dialogue also. The novel is mostly dialogue.
0: It's mostly dialogue. It really is. But the deduction there, and it's clever because it's within the context of Aunt Ada, but we do have another aged character here who's very important to the story. That would be Mrs. Lancaster. Um, The deduction is that we shouldn't be fooled by the decrepit state of old people. I'm quoting that reader, from that uh, u.s magazine you know old people can still be evil and we really can't trust anyone in Christie, can we
1: no and on that note clue number two we have a mrs lancaster who's gone missing and then right around the midpoint of the novel tuppence sees a letter in the hall of miss blight's house addressed to mrs york rose trellis court for elderly ladies. Christy deflects from this by having Tuppence make a joke about, you know, the whole country is full of nothing but homes for the elderly and how she and Tommy will be in one next. But part of our listener base is British and the rest of you probably know your British histories. So what might the Yorks and the Lancasters be? Might that be a War of the Roses reference? Mrs. York is another alias for Mrs. Lancaster, who clearly is not the real name of the woman from the beginning of the story. And also it basically signifies that Nellie Bly is involved.
0: All right. Clue number three. And this is the crucial clue of the novel. And it's interesting because we just had this clue in Endless Night where it was also crucial. I won't get more specific than that because I don't want to spoil Endless Night, of course. But when a character is feeling menaced or afraid... We should never make any assumptions about the source of that menace or fear. And in that standout scene where Tuppence is talking to Mrs. Lancaster, she's incredibly creeped out by what Mrs. Lancaster tells her about a child buried behind the fireplace. And she feels scared for Mrs. Lancaster. Mrs. Lancaster is saying no one knows. And it's just upsetting. But if we're being astute readers, our deduction is that we shouldn't just stop there. You should always take things a step further in Christie, and never make the obvious assumption because the obvious assumption here is, okay, it seems like Mrs. Lancaster is in danger. Let's instead, oh, yes, flip and reverse that assumption. Perhaps the reason Tuppence is feeling scared is that the menace is coming from Mrs. Lancaster. Perhaps instead of commiserating with Tuppence or confiding in her, Mrs. Lancaster in that scene is actually warning Tuppence. Hmm. Makes it even creepier, doesn't it?
1: Yep. So clue number four. Kemper is an old favorite. Actors. (sighs) Oh, boy. We're told repeatedly that either an actor or a dancer, nobody quite remembers, lived in Canal House. And you know, the deduction here is never ignore that reference.
0: That just might be important to the solving of this mystery. And again, this isn't really getting us there. And this book is not functioning as a puzzle mystery. I don't think the bridge is complete from the world as it appears to be to the world as it actually is, but let's hop on over that chasm (laughs) in this thriller. Or that canal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That canal and figure out what's going on here. So Tuppence, when she knocks on the door of the back entrance to Canal House, thinks at first that no one is home, but then eventually someone does answer. It is not the Perry's. The Perry's are not at home at the moment. It is Mrs. Lancaster. And it's actually very effective because Mrs. Lancaster has been missing this entire book and we're beginning to think she must be dead. You know, when someone has disappeared that thoroughly in a murder mystery, they are usually dead. But here she is and she looks exactly as she did in the beginning. She's, you know, still pink and white and fluffy and adorable. And she invites Tuppence in. And this is also, I think, a really effective sequence. Both of the Mrs. Lancaster scenes are great because what she does is she shows Tuppence how to access the front part of the house in the secret way because Amos Perry just unlocked a door. I believe they actually had to they had to move a cabinet or something like that. But it was a door. You know, he was essentially just opening up a door and they were able to get in that way. What Mrs. Lancaster does is she shows that there is a hidden entrance behind a fireplace. This is what she had been talking about when she was talking about a child buried behind the fireplace. It wasn't so much in the fireplace or in the chimney as in the part of the house that is behind the fireplace, accessed by going behind the fireplace. Mm-hmm. And Mrs Lancaster, as you know we noted in our York and Lancaster clue, her name isn't actually Mrs Lancaster. She was in fact the wife of Philip Stark, and I think that we should fess up to the fact that there was a lot of old village gossip that Mrs. Copley for the most part and other people were bandying about in the course of the story and which Tuppence was processing. And we sort of process it along with her. But it is honestly bewildering and very hard to follow. It's almost a little bit of a laundry list effect because it's hard to pinpoint what is important and what's not as we're getting all this information. And buried within here was a story about, well, oh, maybe Sir Philip Stark was actually the one who killed all those children because he seemed very fond of children. And he had a wife who left in the aftermath of all of this. And then she died when she was abroad. And it was all very sad. And that's why he's such a tragic figure. But what we learn is that Sir Philip Stark's wife never died. She was Mrs. Lancaster. She was a beautiful dancer when she was younger. She seems to have suffered from mental illness her entire life. And she also was a criminal. Her name was... Was Killer Kate. This is one of the other pieces of gossip that we learn in and around the middle of the novel. So she was Killer Kate, but then she eventually actually married into this rich family, into the Stark family and Sutton Chancellor. Before, though, she married and kind of made good in more in her Killer Kate days, she got pregnant, obviously out of wedlock, and she had an abortion. Right. And when she got married to Sir Philip, she wanted to start a family. He very much wanted to start a family. He was very fond of children, and she wasn't able to get pregnant at that point. So she went even crazier. And I'm just going to actually read out what she says because it's one of the more horrifying justifications for murder that I think will ever come across in a Christie. What she says is, I couldn't have any children. I'd married and I thought I'd have children. Then my husband wanted children passionately, but the children never came because I was cursed, you see. You understand that, don't you? But there was a way, a way to atone, to atone for what I'd done. What I'd done was murder, wasn't it? And you could only atone for murder with other murders because the other murders wouldn't be really murders. They would be sacrifices. They would be offered up. You do see the difference, don't you? The children went to keep my child company. So that is why she killed all those children. She is the serial killer of all of those kids in Sutton Chancellor. And what Sir Philip Stark did was to lock up his wife rather than bring her to justice. So he is an accessory to this crime. And his assistant, Miss Bly, is also an accessory to this crime because she, in her devoted way, has been helping him keep his wife locked up under these different aliases in various nursing homes. I suppose they take her out of one after she's killed off enough people that people (laughs) start getting suspicious since a serial killer is not a great person to have in a nursing home since people are dying of natural causes all the time. So it's a great cover and very irresponsible, shall we say, of Sir Philip Stark and Miss Bly. And now her latest victim is going to be Tuppence because she first tells her to drink her milk. And she gives her a a glass of milk and Tuppence is like, no, thank you. And then and this was really chilling, but also very, very darkly funny. She can't find the stiletto blade that she brought with her just in case Tuppence wasn't going to take the milk. And she goes, where did I put it? Where did I? I forget everything now I'm getting old. And Tuppence is like losing her mind at this point, like how? like screaming, but they're in the part of the house that's looking out on the canal. You know, she can't get through the fireplace because she doesn't know how to work the mechanism. So she's really trapped here. And then Mrs. Lancaster, or I guess we should say Lady Stark, finds the blade. Tuppence is grappling with her and at first Tuppence is thinking, well, this is an old woman. But then she's like, "Mm, I'm kind of an old woman, though. And this is an old crazy woman. So this is alarming. But fortunately, Tuppence is saying What happens, Catherine?
1: Well, the Perry's and Philip Stark pretty much come and they know the trick to that lock and they save Tuppence and Philip Stark lets uh, his wife drink the milk she tried to poison Tuppence with as an out.
0: The only final coda I would note because it has an echo of partners in crime is that Tommy begs Tuppence essentially not to do this again, Mm -hmm. not to go off on her own. And she says, no, I shan't. I'm too old. She just wants to go home. And he does too. And it's very sweet. And they leave. And the final line is, and if Albert welcomes us with a charred chicken, I'll kill him. I mean, the fact that that's the final line kind of tells you everything you need to know about this book, but You know, it's this wistful echo of the end of Partners in Crime because Tuppence narrowly escapes with her life in their final caper in that collection. And she's pregnant. But Tommy doesn't know that quite yet. And in the very last page, Tommy is saying, please, Tuppence, like, you can't do this anymore. And she says, oh, actually, I'm good. I'm not going to do this ever again because we're about to embark on a much better adventure. And he's like, huh? And then she's like, we're pregnant. And it's very sweet. And it's like their whole lives are starting. And this is very sad because it's like, I just want to go home and spend, you know, the little bit of time we have left with you together and not get hit over the head anymore. And it it is still sweet, but just a little melancholy. And that is the end of the novel. Mm.
1: This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. You know, Catherine, it
0: dawned on me recently that we've been giving way too much airtime to Howie the Lizard when he's just one among many delightfully devilish fiends on offer for anyone who wants to play the game.
1: Are you insulting my love, Kemper?
0: I would never insult you or your love, Catherine, but your love, or in my case my mere esteem, need not be a zero-sum game. We should have room in our hearts, Catherine, for characters like Terry the tarantula who wears a top hat and is renowned for his sweet tooth. Or Buggles the dragonfly who apparently has a hard time telling the truth. Don't we all Buggles? And my personal favorite Miguel the octopus. A quote cerebral cephalopod end quote with a penchant for creating comic books.
1: Are you in... Miguel starting something, Kemper?
0: If by something you mean a beautiful friendship built on problem solving and ridding the world of slugs, then yes, we just might be. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Before we talk about the rankings, let's talk a little bit about the adaptation that exists for this novel. We only have one. Again, the Tommy and Tuppins books have not been adapted all that much, so we don't have a square Tommy and Tuppins adaptation. We really just have this IDV's Marple adaptation. But before I talk about that, I do want to mention that there's a 2005 French language adaptation, Mon Petit Ma Di. Normally, we just mention these non-English language adaptations, you know, the fact that they exist and then we move on. But this one deserves a little more attention because it was the first French language adaptation of the 21st century which means that it was the launching point for what we eventually got in the Petit Meurtres series. It's not part of that series, though, to be clear. But as our friend Mark Aldridge puts it in Agatha Christie on screen, since the turn of the 21st century, France has been one of the most prolific adapters of Christie's works for the screen, second only to the UK. And I think we have this adaptation to thank for a lot of that. The film stars Catherine Fro and André Dussolier as Prudence and Colonel Belleserre Beresford. And you probably know De Solier as the narrator in Amelie. <laughs> People who are French will know him in a lot more than that. But yeah, it's a very much Les Petits Meurtres adaptation. It's very much in that vein. It uses the text as a jumping off point. It goes a bit farcical, but never at the expense of production value or coherence. So I just wanted to point out that that adaptation exists. And then we get a year later in 2006 the ITV's Marple adaptation of By the Bricking of My Thumbs. This was in the second season slash series when Geraldine McEwen was playing Miss Marple. Interestingly, you know, the reason why Agatha Christie's Marple exists is that the media company Corion bought shares in Agatha Christie Limited back in 1998, and they're the ones who got behind Agatha Christie's Marble and really put that series into motion. And what Corian wanted to do right out of the gate in 1999 was actually a Tommy and Tuppence adaptation. It was The Secret Adversary. And they had a script written. They moved all the action up to the eve of the Second World War. They were going to roll right into NRM right after that. I mean, it's ironic because that's exactly what they did 16 years later, not Corian specifically, but we did get our Cold War, not Second World War, but Cold War adaptation of the Secret Adversary and and NRM. Not that it worked all that well, which we've talked about before, but Corian seemed to have been very interested in bringing Tommy and Tubbins to the screen. So I think that's probably why we shouldn't be too surprised that this episode is the very first within the Marple series that is not based on a marble text. So by the pricking of my thumbs was the first time that they went outside the Marple canon and then they would go on to do that in every season, sort of peppering episodes based on Marple text with those not based on Marple text. And, you know, they'd have very mixed results with that. I remember not minding the marbleized version of Ordeal by Innocence, for example, mm-hmm. whereas we kind of tore apart the marbleized version of Endless Night <laughs> in our last yeah, episode. Right. So in this version, Tommy and Tuppence are played by Anthony Anderson and Greta Scatchy. They get top buildings here. And they're actually really big names. I mean, those are very high profile actors and they do well in this adaptation. The performances are almost never the problem in these episodes. The problem is usually the writing and the direction. And I would say that that's kind of the case here as well. Tuppence is an alcoholic. Um, she feels <laughs> weird. <thwarted. choice. laughs> yeah. Taking nips from a hip flask throughout this whole thing. She feels her life was thwarted by having kids, which is quite honestly, such a simplification of what we have in the text where it has nothing to do with the fact that she had kids. It has more to do with the systemic nature of sexism. <laughs> like right, that's ab- what Christy wrote, no, right? Absolutely. Like 60 years ago.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's totally, totally what it is. She still manages to find her way in. So it's not exactly like she's thwarted to begin with. The annoying
0: thing is that they have to bring Miss Marple into the action. So Miss Marple ends up doing a lot of the active detecting and having a lot of the ideas that carry them from step to step as they're detecting. So she really has to share the limelight tuppence with Miss Marple. And it, it takes away from her a little bit, I think. But that's fine. Mm, it's interesting is that... Is it fine? No, it's not great. I mean, this is why I think it's very awkward to make these non-Marple novels into Marple novels. There's often just not room for her. And I don't think there's room here. And what they do is they really, really sideline Tommy. I mean, he is sidelined in the first half of the book and they do that in the adaptation, but he barely even comes back. And he's very much a caricature, uh, even more so than he is in the text in this adaptation. I did find it interesting that June Whitfield plays Mrs. Lancaster. And she's fantastic in both of her scenes. It's ironic, though, because June Whitfield very famously voiced Miss Marple in all of the BBC radio adaptations of the Miss Marple novel. So for a lot of people, June Whitfield is their Miss Marple. And I think it's funny that she appeared in a Marple episode, not as Miss Marple. R.I.P., by the way, she died a couple of years ago. And, you know, they add some subplots. There's this American soldier named Chris. And honestly, hearing Miss Marple have to say the name Chris was like really embarrassing (laughs) as I was watching it. I was like, oh, Miss Marple, no. I mentioned the fact that Tuppence finds the note from Aunt Ada much earlier, and I think that motivates her a lot better than in the book. I also like the fact that Charles Dance is in it. He plays the vicar who actually does have a name. I believe his name is Septimus Harding. Charles Dance is always a welcome addition to anything.
1: Oh, I mean, as Um, we discussed at length in our Rebecca Patreon adaptations episode.
0: Indeed. Okay, so there is one change they made that I honestly found infuriating, because to me it represents a total loss of nerve on the part of a series that seems to have prided itself on so often going for the shocking plot development. Sometimes, when that meant adding same-sex attraction to a plot, it maybe kinda sorta worked, although even then I'm usually rolling my eyes because it's done in such a ham-fisted way. Uh, And I'll never forget the fact that they chose to add an incest plotline to Murder is Easy, but in any case, here's my issue. We just talked about the shocking motivation that Christy wrote for her murderer in this book, right? Which goes to the issue of abortion, something which, as we'll discuss in our rankings in a moment, was very much in the news at the time Christie was writing this book. So Christy chose to give Mrs. Lancaster this warped sense of religion, whereby she became convinced that she had to murder children to atone for her own abortion, Doesn't this sound like exactly the sort of thing that would get added to an Agatha Christie's marble denouement? And yet, shockingly, infuriatingly, they excised this motivation from their adaptation of this
2: novel. If a woman is battling psychological problems, then... Pregnancy and especially the loss of a child can be the crisis that pushes her over the edge. I believe this must have happened to your wife.
0: Here, Mrs. Lancaster miscarried, and so she killed all those children as a means of revenge, a sort of protest of how unfairly she was treated.
2: Why should my baby die and the common child live? Some things are simple when you look at them, right?
0: This is so much less shocking and twisted, and it just irritates me to no end, because it's like the one time that they had a motivation in keeping with how lurid this series clearly preferred to be, they had the gall to change it. it, it this is this one is fine. I mean, I really do tend to prefer the Julia McKenzie episodes. It just doesn't overall work very well and just has me asking why at the end of it.
1: Yeah. I don't like taking agency away from Tuppence.
0: Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor.
1: If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast.
0: It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christy fans such as yourselves to find our podcast.
1: And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach.
0: It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it
1: thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming
0: Well, let's talk about the ranking for by the pricking of my thumbs. I, of course, would like to quote our friend John Curran. I can't believe I haven't mentioned him yet until this late in the episode. Uh, Here's what he had to say about the book. Coming directly after the shocking and inventive Endless Night, by the pricking of my thumb, suffers inevitably by comparison. But although, for the most part, the book is a series of reminiscences with a little solid fact, the opening chapters are certainly intriguing, conveying something of the old Christie magic, and the denouement is unsettling. The underlying themes of madness and child murder, combined with scenes set in graveyards and deserted houses, could well have justified, as suggested by the first edition blurb, which was written by Christie herself, the more appropriate title, By the Chilling of Your Spine.
2: <laughs>
0: I think that's fair. I also think that Francis Isles's review in The Guardian, that of course would be Anthony Barkley Cox, I think his review is also fair and much more pithy. This is what he said. This is a thriller, not a detective story, and needless to say, an ingenious and exciting one, but anyone can write a thriller. Well, almost anyone. Whereas a genuine Agatha Christie could be written by one person only. That is like the best summation of why the puzzle mysteries are better than the thrillers that I've ever heard. He's totally right. And, you know, because this is a thriller, I think it's a lesser book when comparing it to a lot of the other Christie's that we've read. And I think especially as to plot, this book suffers by comparison because there's no puzzle mystery plot and even just the plot of the story itself feels muddled and baggy.
1: It's not just that it's baggy. It's that it just doesn't make a lot of sense how anybody's actually taking action in it. You know, that's when we were joking about that sort of section that's about 200 plus pages in where everything happens in two seconds. It, It doesn't work
0: so much of this is just Tuppence meandering about Sutton Chancellor and market basing. And then Tommy fretting over why Tuppence has disappeared. And there's nothing happening to advance the mystery plot. Even just like the, the thriller adventure plot. Well, I mean, it just I would say, feels meandering.
1: I, here's the thing about it. I don't mind a long mystery novel. I really don't. But so much of this is paragraphs of dialogue that Don't have to be there. And so you end up with a very long novel.
0: Yeah, this is a long Christie. I mean, 277 pages is long. A lot of my favorite Christie's are barely over 200 pages, right?
1: But I mean, I don't mind a long novel whatsoever. Not even remotely. If it's doing things that are useful or if it's doing character development. Like, I can put up with giant chunks of character development. If I think it's valuable, but this is not doing that. And that to me is the biggest problem. It's not even like entirely the mechanics, for example, of it. It's that it needed to be seriously edited.
0: Yeah, I would compare it to Death on the Nile, actually, which is, I think, you know, one of the grander of Christie's Puzzle Mysteries. It's biting off a lot, but also chewing everything that it bites (laughs) It's hefty. It's a hefty mystery. And we don't get our first victim until halfway through that novel. But there's a ton of character work happening and also just a ton of plotting because we have a lot of suspects and a lot of side plots and a lot of intrigue. And we even have jewels in that one, too. Mm -hmm. But it's all in the service of the mystery. And I don't get impatient with Death on the Nile in the way that I get impatient with this. By the way, I mean, the other thing I just have to say when we're on plot is that we didn't even really talk about the fact that there technically is a criminal mastermind who is behind a whole bunch of high-profile crimes. Mm -hmm. That would be Mr. Eccles, the creepy lawyer. So we learn that basically there are a bunch of houses up and down the English countryside, the Canal House being one of them, which are used to hide the loot from various robberies. They're they're drops. They're drops. And that's why those uncut diamonds were found in that doll. The Canal House is one of these houses, and the Perrys are in on that. Or they're at least, they know something's happening, and they're there to kind of be stand-in so that no one else lives there, and they know that something not very good is happening there. So they're not entirely on the up-and-up which perhaps is you know ultimately why Tuppence I mean, had such like, misgivings it's, it's a about a them. a
1: Terrible red herring because it's just it doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't
0: matter, and I would also just like to point out that one of the robberies that we're told they were responsible for is quote the Irish Mail Train business. Fast forward if you haven't read at Bertram's Hotel, <laughs> but the Irish Mail Train heist was already taken. In at Bertram's Hotel, that was the responsibility of Bess Sedgwick, who was the criminal mastermind in that book. Yeah. As opposed to Mr. Eccles in this. So which one was responsible, Agatha? Was it Bess Sedgwick or Mr. Eccles? Or is Mr. Eccles over Bess Sedgwick? Like, I just, my mind starts exploding here. I'm just like,
1: what? I know. And it's just, it's that kind of thing where you have a thriller plot that should not be there.
0: Right. The thriller plot does not need to be there. We did not need uncut diamonds in a creepy old doll. We didn't need the creepy house agent subplot either. This book needed 50 pages shaved off. Like, please yeah. just dispense with a thriller subplot and then just make it a creepy mystery about a
1: and you could serial still have the, killing it, old woman. Well, you could still have the parries. You know, OK, I'm going to go back to this, actually, that I think that we have murder is easy ranked too low. Spoiler alert if you have not read Murder is Easy, but do we see a certain similarity to what's going on here? I would say that Murder is Easy is a much better version of the plot of like the sort of a nice old lady in the village who turns out to have had some traumatic love experience early in her life, who has gone completely mad as a result. There's also a witch misdirect in that, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I think by the pricking of my thumbs has going for it is that it's an incredibly creepy idea and also a convincing one that a serial killer would be able to hide in plain sight in an old person's home.
2: Hello, I'm Detective Paris, Dade County PD. Does a Sophia Petrillo reside here?
0: Because people are dying all the
2: time. Mrs. Petrillo, where were you on the night of September 4th, 1985? Did you see Awakenings? Throw a ball at me. How the hell should I know? I don't even remember what color underwear I'm wearing. The beginning of September, that's when Shady Pines burned down and you came here to live with us. Oh, yeah. I'm not wearing underpants. But she doesn't
0: use it. She kind of throws away that element because then it just becomes about mrs lancaster when she was younger and killing children and this house etc cetera, etc cetera. and then we get embroiled in a thriller plot about a criminal mastermind well, i and would oh say that the
1: most bothersome piece of it to me is that we don't even know who the victims are the children or whoever she was killing in the homes for the aged uh,
0: mrs petrillo were you acquainted with the late maria
2: hartgrove she died good riddance God rest her soul. Right, and
0: that's why we said that we couldn't really put Ada Fanshaw as um, because who knows? a definite victim. And so- I think it's pretty clearly implied that she was killed, and we know from the letter that she was suspicious, and I think— that mrs lancaster would have realized that and just had no problem with killing her but possibly but
1: we don't know that and i think that at least in murder is easy like you know what's going on in it and this is like well okay i've just read this entire novel and i don't even know who this person killed
0: mrs moody we do know that she was killed because she recognized that mrs lancaster was this formerly famous dancer Right. Yeah. Named Water Lily. You know, that was her most famous uh, role persona. Her, right. Her, her, f- her most role. famous
1: role. So we know one victim, but we also know that clearly she killed a lot of people. The lack of clarity of even how many people this serial killer killed. Right. Is uh, disturbing. I don't think we've read any other Christie novel where we couldn't identify the victims. Yeah. And so that is like one of the big problems here to me. So, I mean, I guess what I would say ultimately is that when we're going for like mechanics, I mean, it makes some degree of sense. There's some insane logic going
0: here. I'd say we've seen worse. We've certainly seen a lot better and it's usually better, but we have seen worse. I don't think we're going to be giving it the lowest scores we've ever given for plot mechanics and plot credibility. But also the fact that Mrs. Lancaster used to go by the alias killer Kate and work with a man who was called Happy Hamish. Uh, yeah, this isn't feeling very real (laughs) to me, other than maybe the house agents being part of the criminal mastermind, because house agents really can be pretty sleazy.
1: Yeah, it seems (laughs) like, listen, that adds up totally to me. So like, that makes sense.
0: (laughs) That's like the only part that. Yeah, um, it's like, is your is
1: your uh, giant teeth whitened smile on a bus stop? (laughs) I'm not going to trust you.
0: I mean, this is something else that I wanted to note, and I think it goes to plot credibility. I kept bumping on, how is there a gravestone that says Lily Waters, right? Because there is. There is a gravestone that says Lily Waters, but we are told it's when Toppins finds it. Well, it's fallen, but it's also, when she reads Here Lies Lily Waters, it is in uneven cutting by an amateur hand. Mm-hmm. So someone actually cut into this to create a fake gravestone, and then they put a child-sized coffin in the crown with the loot. Quote, jewels and gold objects from a burglary near St. Albans. Why would they choose to name their fake dead child Lily Waters, given the water lily connection? Is that a coincidence?
1: Uh, interesting. (laughs) Fair enough. I mean, that is interesting.
0: (laughs) It's just not adding up. Let's just say this. It's not elegant. And Christy so often is elegant with her plotting. We talked a little bit about this before we were going to record. And I think that we decided that giving plot mechanics a four and plot credibility a four felt right.
1: Yeah. I might even feel less generous now, but... (laughs) I know. I'm
0: comfortable with that. I think, you know, we're going to have our state of the rankings, you know, within a couple of weeks. So we could always adjust this down if we feel like we have to, but I think eight out of 20 is pretty low. Yeah. And feels about right. Okay. Then we get to series long characters. And I think this is our happiest category because we've talked a lot about this already, but this is a really good Tommy and Tuppence book. Even if their relationship might be in some ways problematic, that is, first of all, consistent. right? (laughs) And second of all, they they just come across as a real couple and all the things that work about them and that are complicated about them are preserved in this book that is written over 25 years after the last time we've seen them. And I love that she brought them back to life so convincingly and at such a later age in their lives. Yeah. What are you going with? I think that we should go pretty high on this. Something like a seven or an eight. An eight's probably a little high. I think probably a seven out of 10 would work. Okay. Okay, great. Then let's move right along to book specific characters. I actually think that the characters in this book are okay. I think that there are some forgettable characters, but we talked a lot about Aunt Ada. She packs a punch in that Mm -hmm. one scene in which we have her. She's very memorable. (laughs) We, also talked a lot about Mrs. Lancaster. Again, packs a punch for her two scenes. Extremely memorable. I think Miss Bly is fine. I think that Mrs. Copley, actually, the way she's described and the way she goes on and on, she too really only has one major sequence, but I found her to be amusing. And I also thought that Mrs. Boscowen was actually somewhat memorable Mm -hmm. as a character, even though she's, you know, mainly just conveying some vital information. (laughs) I thought that Christy did a good job with her. I don't think we should go super high on this category, but I also don't think we should go super low.
1: Where are you landing?
0: I think five is, you know, neither super high nor super low, right in the middle, right smack in the middle.
1: Yeah, that seems totally valid. And yeah, I think all of those that you mentioned, it's too bad that they're not featured more in the book.
0: Right. Yeah, and then otherwise, I think it's just a lot of meanderings and mutterings of Tuppence and other characters. I mean, I suppose the Perrys are also okay. I think their depiction is just a little problematic. <laughs> um, we'll talk about depictions stuck in their time in a moment, but I think that might be why they don't quite sing as characters. All right, moving on to setting and tone. I actually want to quote John Curran again because he quotes Christie from uh, her notebooks when she was plotting this book in her notebook books, here's what she wrote to herself. Rewriting a first half, not so verbose. First three or four chapters good, but afterwards too slow. I wish she had taken her own advice here. You know, she gave herself the note, but I don't think she quite dug in on the note because this is a verbose book and I think it is too slow. And it's interesting that she was aware of that. Like many late career Christie's, this book is just filled with memories. It's even preoccupied with the very notion of memory, right? And that's interesting, but it doesn't mean that the book has to be meandering. Robert Barnard, actually, the Christie critic, who we quote from time to time, he uh, had something to say on that score. said makes one appreciate the economy of dialogue, all point or at least possible point in early Christie. And that's true. It's what we've said many times before that she ran a tight ship in the books from her early career and that ship had loosened by this point, And I think that's a shame. I also don't think overall that the setting of this book is particularly good. I do think that the scene with Mrs. Lancaster is fantastic especially at the beginning of the novel and even at the end of the novel. So I think that the old age home is rather well rendered, not amazingly well rendered. And then the canal house itself is rather well rendered. But the village of Sutton Chancellor, even Tuppence's ramblings, I, I didn't get a terribly specific sense of place or powerful evocation of anything as to setting. We did have one reference to the fact that Mrs. Johnson who picks up Mrs. Lancaster, who was, of course, by the way, Nellie Bly in disguise. She was just pretending to be Mrs. Johnson when she was ferrying her from old age home to old age home. Um, She is said to have returned rather unexpectedly from East Africa. Quote, so many people have done so. I mean, that's obviously because the British Empire is crumbling and (laughs) colonialism is falling apart. So that's why they're all uh, hightailing it out of Africa. But that was one of the few references that pinpointed the action within the late 60s as opposed to a book like Third Girl, you know, which like really had to take place in the late 60s. -hmm. And it's deliberate on Christie's part that when Mrs. Copley is talking about all these different stories, she's not being clear as to what is happening when. And Tuppence even says, you know, that's what people do in the country. They don't say, oh, this happened in 1936 and this happened in 1952. They say this happened, you know, the year that we had that big storm or after this big political event in our village, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of confusion as to all these stories and and again you could say that this is a version of the laundry list obfuscation right where she's just giving us a lot of information and burying what's important and what's not so we have to separate the wheat from the chaff so to speak but I found it tedious how did you feel about setting in tone
1: um I mean it's interesting there is obviously like the religious under lying issue here right because the sacrifice along with the fact that there's the runner in this about the parish and about the vicar are related right because it's some sort of completely skewed notion of religion the most famous story in the old testament is you know the binding of isaac by abraham and Christie, you know obviously was a religious person and it's just like a completely skewed reading right because that's not what the point of that story is The point of that story is ultimately the sacrifice is supposed to be just about faith. And then the faith means that the sacrifice doesn't have to happen. And this woman is just killing child after child after other woman after other woman in some attempt to, I don't know, get something back. And it's just this incredibly, incredibly skewed evil misinterpretation of religion, I think. And I think it's actually like kind of cleverly written in that regard because otherwise the stuff in the cemetery and with the vicar doesn't make a lot of sense, but it does within that context.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think here, too, it's interesting. We've brought up the status of abortion in the UK before in Christie, because it does come up, you know, I wouldn't say frequently, but not infrequently in these books. And abortion was legalized in England. It actually the legalization of it was passed in October of 1967, and it came into effect in April of 1968. And this book is published in November of 1968. This is something that was in the news and I think on a lot of people's minds. And I think it's really interesting.
1: Well, she says, Mrs. Lancaster says that she had been a dancer so she could not get pregnant and the doctors told her it would be all right, which means that she got a back alley abortion. Yeah. And so. Because
0: this was a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, this was, you know, would have been happening in the the 30s 30s or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or 20s. I'm sure there was a certain impression that the motivation for the murder made on a reader in 1968. And it was also very interesting, quite honestly, reading this as an American in 2021. Mm, Yeah. Because we're having our own struggles and debate.
1: The reality here, though, is that abortion has always been done. There's efficiency named in the Bible. Largely, I think it's in numbers. So it's been going on forever. But the reality is either it's legal or it's illegal. And in this case, it's about somebody getting basically probably like a wire hanger and having been damaged from it and if somebody already had mental illness and then had to go through that it's interesting that she was actually probably paying attention to that in the news because clearly mrs lancaster we'll just keep calling her that didn't have proper medical care and when you can't get proper medical care bad things happen and she went haywire
0: I mean, it's such a baroque and twisted and extreme version of anything. Oh,
1: I mean, it's like it's it's it's, it's bonkers. Like, let's be it's bonkers clear. and it's,
0: ludicrous. It's a little hard, I think, to extrapolate. No, <laughs>
1: you know, anything no, it is. But I terms mean, of I, do, but I do. Real world
0: policy from that, but
1: no. But I mean, I do think that it is specifically tied into other things. I mean, it's done clunkily, but you can trace the pattern. That's happening there.
0: I think that's a really interesting read. I mean, I think certainly the healthcare system has failed Mrs. Lancaster Mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways, right? She clearly has not been adequately cared for in terms of her mental illness, in terms of her aging, and in terms of early on. A really, really harmful abortion procedure that she had before abortion was legal and there was any standardization of all of that. So I, you know, I it's a pretty coherent read mm-hmm. and cohesive read of everything that happens in the book, even mm-hmm. though it is ludicrous. Thank um, you. I think that's really interesting. But dare I say, you know, we make a habit on this podcast of giving Christy as much credit as possible. I think you might be giving this book a little more credit, but you know what? I mean, we talk all the time about like a book is as powerful and as poignant as a reader wants it to be and a reader can make it. And I think you just elevated this book, but I think you're using, you know, you're supporting yourself with the text and that's all there. So good on you. I do think that's like legitimately fascinating read.
1: Well, I appreciate that, especially because I'm going to rank this (laughs) lowly. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess, I don't know, maybe like a five. Yeah.
0: It's pretty easy for me to give a five to book specific characters. I think ultimately the setting and tone is also middling because the book does have a lot to recommend it in terms of the Tommy and Tuppence of it all. And that's of high importance, obviously, but there's the looseness of the storytelling There's the lackluster evocation of setting, you know, I think if pushed, I could give it a six, but a five actually does feel right to me if you're comfortable with that. Yeah,
1: let's keep it there. Okay.
0: I did like, by the way, that we got a pretty notable Pierre Gint reference, and it does not surprise me that Christy liked Ibsen. Like that makes perfect sense to me.
1: I also love Ibsen, right? just was expecting that you would bring that up earlier. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you, uh, you know, I went through an Ibsen phase. I went through like, I think I had a summer when I was 11 or 12, where that's all I read the entire summer. I read like 15 Ibsen plays, which for me was unusual because as you know, Catherine, I refused to read literature and translation, but I made an exception for Ibsen.
1: <laughs> um, That is very odd. Also, you weren't a theater kid.
0: I wasn't. No, I was just doing this, you know, for the pure literary joy of reading Ibsen.
1: That's interesting. Hmm.
0: You're not so much an Ibsen person, are you?
1: Oh, I've read all of Ibsen.
0: Of course you have, but you're not. I feel like you don't cotton to him as much as
1: Um, others may. No, I no, I would not say that I ever have really. When I was that age, I was a giant Tom Stoppard fan. That makes sense.
0: I'm just imagining Child Catherine reading a lot of Tom Stoppard and Child Kemper reading a lot of Ibsen, and that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, it seems about right.
0: <laughs> Whoa, we got off track there. Okay. So five for setting in tone. And now we come to stuck in its time. I know, Catherine, you have some thoughts here. So I want to give the floor over to you. I will just note that in the first few pages, when Tommy looks at a letter, Tuppence asks him what it is and he replies an appeal and Tuppence asks delinquent boys racial integration and Tommy responds that no it's about opening a home for old people and that's actually what reminds him that he has to visit his aunt Ada so that letter is really the inciting incident of the whole book and what Tuppence replies is well that's more sensible anyway. There was a little bit of a capital C conservative sense of, is she in any way belittling the notion of rehabilitation for delinquent boys and racial integration? Uh, Maybe I'm reading a little bit into that, but it made me a mite uncomfortable. I just thought it was an interesting question. I
1: don't know about that, but I mean, there are three other issues, at least in this. Tommy's dismissiveness of Toppins in this gets unpleasant in various points and I don't think it's particularly consistent with the earlier versions, but then again, people age, so maybe it is in this case. Secondly, Amos Perry is portrayed not great, we'll say, as far as like maybe having some developmental problems. Also uncomfortable, and the fact that the ultimate solution is that a woman got a back alley abortion and then went insane and became a serial killer. You know, I think that this merits a conversation. And also this book throws around the word tartar very frequently in a way that I don't remember being in any other Christie book, and I was a little bit jarred to see it just thrown around that much.
0: Oh, she's used tartar a lot before. I, she uses that all the time.
1: I just don't think as much in here. Maybe I just noticed it more in here.
0: Well, it's because they're talking about Aunt Ada all the time. Right? Everyone calls her a tartar. Old Josh, the Major General. Also, when he's reminiscing about how pretty she was when she was young right. and he was young and they almost got together. Yeah, it was just it was, it was
1: disconcerting. And I mean, I feel like we've called out Gypsy in Endless Night. So I think it would be wrong of us to not mention this here. But I mean, as a whole, that combination of things, something has to be deducted.
0: I'm on board with one deduction. I think I would have, if left to my own devices, I think not deducted anything. I mean, funnily enough, I also was a little bothered by this other moment where Tommy, when he first meets Mr. Eccles, he's thinking about how he just doesn't like him. He basically just doesn't like the look of him. And there's this little narrative section where Christie's writing about how these hunches are so often right. And, you know, especially when you have an expert who just gets to instinctively know quote the taste and look and feel of a forgery before getting down to expert tests and examinations. That's in the case of an expert antique dealer. The thing just is wrong and that's all well and good. It's not even an invalid point. I understand what she's saying there, But it's also thinking like that, that that provides the cover for lots of bigotry and insularity if you're not careful. And I think that because Tommy and Tuppence are her most non marginalized English detective characters, you know, obviously Miss Marple is just as English, but she's an old unmarried woman because Tommy and Tuppence are you know very happily ensconced in the very center of society right they've done everything right and they've done everything they should do i think sometimes you can get a little uncomfortable with their satisfaction and their self-righteousness, there's a thin line between their celebration of their marriage and their kind of self-righteousness as to, oh, well, I just know who's worthwhile and who's good versus bad because I'm just, you know, an expert in these things. That's right. just what I've, what I've done in my career. And, um, you know, it's just something to make note of in the Tommy Tubbins books. And I think that um, a lot of what you're pointing out too is just a certain level of discomfort and it's not the usual depiction stuck in their time which is like oh my god she used this awful word or she made this awful observation that we would never do now it's actually a lot more insidious Mm-hmm. in the in Correct. this Tommy yeah. and Tuppence novel. And I think in the Tommy and Tuppences in general, it is, which is interesting. And I think for that reason, you really could make the argument that it should cut the other way and there should be more deductions. But I think we're always trying to give Christie credit and we're always trying to be as forgiving and non-judgmental as we can be. And what this category is about is... Does this jar, does this mar the read to an extent where someone reading it now is going to enjoy it less than they should, less than they're meant to? And I don't think that that's totally the case here, which is why I think keeping it at one deduction makes sense. But again, I think this is something we could revisit.
1: Yeah, I almost would have gone higher, but we can leave it at one.
0: All right. So we've got one deduction then for By the Pricking of My Thumbs, we are now... At the end of our episode, when we tally up our score, so for by the pricking of my thumbs, we have four plus four plus seven plus five plus five minus one for a grand total of 24 points, putting by the pricking of my thumbs in a tie with a couple of interesting titles. Catherine, are you ready? Okay. Currently at 24 points, we have as follows. The Moving Finger, Dumb Witness, Murder is Easy. At Bertram's Hotel, The Murder on the Links, and The Mystery of the Blue Train. That was in descending order, of course, uh, starting with 44th place and ending in 49th place. So we are very much in our bottom third, which to me feels right. I don't think that this book deserves to be any higher than that. I feel pretty strongly that it should certainly be below The Moving Finger, Dumb Witness, and Murder is Easy. I have to imagine you agree with that. Yep. I think it's a little bit of a toss up whether or not it goes above or below at Bertram's hotel. I think it certainly goes above the murder on the links and the mystery of the blue train. And I think at a pinch, it does go above at Bertram's hotel.
1: Hmm. If you feel strongly about that, I'm torn on it. So if you feel strongly about that, then I'm okay with that.
0: I know what you mean. There's an argument to be made that it should go below it. I just think, you know, we read at Bertram's hotel recently And I just remember really not enjoying my read and being surprised by that. And I actually think that even though there were so many problems with this book, and you would think from our conversation that we didn't enjoy it at all, I actually had a fairly good time reading it.
1: Well, in that case, my
0: overall sense of it is better. All right, let's put it. Let's put
1: it above at Bertram's hotel then. All
0: right, so By the Pricking of My Thumbs is now officially in 47th place out of 59 books. Pretty low, surprisingly low. I think I would have predicted that it would score a lot higher than that before I read it. But again, having just read it, I think that that is correct.
1: Yep, that sounds right to me.
2: My mother is 85 years old. I mean, surely you'll I'm make- sorry, the law recognizes no age limits. Mrs. Petrillo, you're under arrest.
0: Well, that is by the pricking of my thumbs. So for our next episode, we have something really exciting. We are doing another interview. It is actually someone we have interviewed before. It's Anthony Horowitz. We interviewed him last year for Moonflower Murders. That is one mystery series that he's writing. And this year we're interviewing him for another mystery series of his. That would be the Daniel Hawthorne series in which Anthony appears himself as the Hastings character and they're just so much fun we're such fans of everything he writes but in particular those books Um, he's on his third now in in that series and we just had a lovely conversation with him and we can't wait to share it with you
1: yeah no we had a very lovely chat with him it would have been much nicer don't you think Kemper if we had been able to do it perhaps at the battery at Greenway
0: oh my god
1: (laughs) It was the goal, but alas.
0: Why are you torturing me, Catherine? I
1: know. Next year, next year, we'll do this all over again. Knock on wood. And yeah, we hope that you guys are going to enjoy the conversation because we certainly enjoyed it.
0: We did. And just a spoiler alert, we may have written ourselves into a future book in the series. Yeah. I'm just going to throw that out there. It's
1: possible Anthony Horowitz wants to murder me.
0: (laughs) 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 <laughs> well in the meantime we would love to hear from you while we still have time left on this earth apparently you can always email us at all about the dame at gmail.com you can find bonus content on our patreon site that's at www.patreon.com allaboutagatha all about you can find us on twitter at all about the dame you can find Catherine on twitter at Brobcat. our instagram handle is at all about and if you haven't already done so please just take a moment to give us a rating or a review it'll really help us out and we'll see you next time bye
1: Bye.
2: whatever you think she did she's guilty i saw her